Hey man, take your Bibles this morning and let's turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter number 9. And Luke's Gospel, chapter number 9, as we continue our series for our theme this year about being a disciple and what that means. Uh, and so we uh, are going to continue with that thought. So Luke chapter 9, and we're going to begin reading together there in verse number 18. Uh, and read down through verse number 26. So Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, the Bible says, And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? And they answering said, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answering said, The Christ of God. Now, you'll remember when we started this series, we preached a parallel passage here in this same story. Uh, and Jesus at this point tells, tells Peter that upon this rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. And so this is not two separate instances. This is the same instance. We just have a different perspective here. And I'll say more about that in a moment. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come unto after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged? If he gain the whole world, then lose himself or be cast away. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed. When he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. And I want to speak this morning on this thought, the daily life of a disciple. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask that you'd meet with us. Holy Spirit, we need your presence Lord Jesus, we claim the promise that when we're gathered together in your name, that you're here in the midst of us. Convict us of our sin. Lord, I pray that you would crush us under the weight and the burden of the sin that we try to bear on our own. Lord, help us to forsake and to confess and forsake that sin that you identify in our lives. And Lord, may we walk surrendered humbly before you, fulfilling and conducting your will for our lives and not our own. Lord, help us to have the desire and the wherewithal to allow you to transform us into true, genuine disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, make it so, we pray in Jesus' name and amen. As we look here this morning and open this series several weeks ago now about disciple, be one, make one. And so we looked at what a disciple is. We started with this same passage in Matthew. And then we looked at becoming one. It's important. You cannot you cannot make a disciple until you become a disciple. And so the essence of what our church is about is to become disciples of Christ so that we can make disciples of Christ. Uh, and so Victory Baptist Church is not a place that anyone is going to stay for long if they're looking to be entertained and then to hear a pep talk about Jesus tacked on at the end. And so that's not what we're here for. That's not a biblical church, by the way. There are all kinds of places that you can go to that tack church on the end of their name like that. Uh, and so there are a couple of them just right down the road and around the corner over here. Uh, and if you want to just, uh, you know, get entertained for a while and hop up and down and be, be stirred up emotionally uh, before the Word of God is opened, then, then, then you, you can do that. There are plenty of places that will help accommodate that. That's not why we're here. That's not what Victory Baptist Church is about. 
we are about letting God speak to our hearts and to conform us into the image of his son. Uh, and so those that are seeking truth and are willing to let truth brutally ravage their existence and to transform them into what God wants them to be, uh, if that's your desire, if you're a truth seeker this morning, then you'll feel right at home here. Uh, and so we're, we're glad that you're here regardless. But uh, I'm just telling you, people that are not serious, don't stick around here too long. And there's a reason for that. And it's the reason is what we're going to talk about and what we're going to see in the scriptures this morning. We opened again with this, this being a disciple. Now, I mentioned earlier that this is a parallel passage. Uh, you see this story here in Luke chapter 9. We looked at it in uh, Matthew chapter 16 a few weeks ago. It's also given in Mark chapter number 8. And that's because it is a part of what we call the synoptic gospels. And so uh, you hear that term from time to time. Uh, I've found over the years that even people that have been in church for a lot of years can't really say back what that really is. And so I ask a couple of people, uh, what is the synoptic gospel? And uh, they're like, oh, I know that. But they couldn't, they couldn't state what it was. And so, uh, and, it's, and it's really, we should know. And it's one of the things that I failed to uh, just briefly kind of point out some of the things along the way. So what we mean by synoptic gospels is this. Gospels that essentially are in unison or they tell the same story from a different vantage point. And that's what you have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's not completely, it, 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 there are separate stories, but for the most part, you have the same account of the same parables, of the same miracles, of the same teachings that Jesus gave. Uh, some one book may have more detail about one than the other uh, and there's a reason for that uh, and so and then the gospel of John uh, doesn't have that many accounts in it that are in Matthew Mark or Luke there are some but it's not what John is about and so uh, we every Christian should understand as they read their Bible and they begin to learn their Bible, uh, that these things are working together, and God did this not by mistake. It's not an accident that there are four Gospels, uh, that there are four stories of the life and revelations of the life of Christ. And so uh, God is very, uh, very systematic in, in presenting himself. Uh, and so <coughs> what we look here, what we see is this. We see that in Matthew's account and in Mark's account, he said that if you would truly be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. But in Luke's account, he says you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. So why that one word difference? What, what's the significance of that word daily? Why did he say daily to Luke's audience, but not to Matthew's audience and Mark's audience? And the reason here is this, that daily in Matthew's audience and Luke's and, and Mark's audience is assumed. And what I mean by that is this, Matthew presents Jesus to the Jews. They present, the Jews were looking for their king. Messiah to a Jew is the king that's coming back to break the yoke of the bondage of Rome from us and to reestablish us as our own nation. That's what they longed for in the days of Jesus, but that really was never achieved, at least they're becoming a nation again until 1948. So that's how long Israel was dispersed after Babylon. 
in, in, a, in a great sense. The, the, the real regathering began after the Holocaust in World War II. So Matthew, and the symbol of Matthew is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Why? Because we associate a lion with the king of beasts, right? So Jesus is presented in the scripture as the lion of the tribe of Judah because he is presented as the king of Israel. Uh, and that's what they're looking for. So Jesus is being presented to this audience in terms that are, make him pleasing and acceptable to him, to them. And so he lays it out there. It written, it's written to them. It presents him as his king. Mark, the symbol for Mark is an ox because Mark is written to the Romans. And the Romans would never accept a Jewish king. Their king is Caesar. So to present to a Roman Jesus as their king is, is the last thing that they would ever accept. So they don't present him as king. Mark presents him as a servant. And that symbolically is the ox. And it's written to them, presenting this servant, because as a king's subject, or as a conqueror's servant, when the king gives his subject a command, or when a conqueror gives his slave a command, that command and those duties are assumed to be repetitive and daily. The, the master, the conqueror, is not going to get up to his conquered slave and the king is not going to get up to his loyal subject and say, I want you to do these duties every day. This is your duty. To do it daily is assumed. But Luke is written to the Greeks. Now Luke is a Jew of the dispersion. That means that his family at Babylon's captivity of Israel and Judah uh, was carried away. And so he's part of the dispersion. So he, he is not a Jew that grew up in Israel or Judah. He is a Jew that grew up abroad. Uh, and you see him in the New Testament, and we've seen this already in our study on the book of Acts, uh, that he is frequently a companion of the Apostle Paul as he travels and, and preaches the gospel and sees churches established uh, after he's been there and preached and raised up. So Luke is a Hellenist. He is uh, one who has been cultured. He's one that's been uh, taught a lot of, of, of theory and a lot of uh, philosophy and things of that nature. So why is that significant? Well, it's significant because the Greeks worshiped the human form. The Greeks gave us philosophers. The Greeks gave us culture, what we would consider culture, literature, things of that nature. The Jews, or, or the, the, excuse me, the Greeks gave us the Olympics. And they so worshiped the human form that athletes in the Olympics in ancient Athens competed naked because they worshiped the human body. You see that attributed as you look and study the New Testament whenever you see their worship of pagan gods like Diana and others throughout the New Testament. What was the epitome or the height of worship was prostitution in the temple. And those acts of prostitution were considered Worship. Why? Because they're worshiping the human form, the human body. Man is his own God. And I'm just telling you this morning that in our culture, we are the Greeks. Yeah. We worship self. 
We are worshipers of man, and everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. And truth is relative, not absolute. And we, we, we loathe someone telling us what we can and can't do. We loathe someone telling us what's right and what's wrong. We, re, we automatically in our souls rebel against anyone, especially if you're an adult, trying to tell you what you can or can't or should or shouldn't do. It's our nature. Why? Because in our culture, we have been brought up and we have been trained and we have seen evidence before us, the worship of man. It's humanism in its simplest form. And it came from this Greek period of time. Luke is written to us, to our mindset, to our, our innate value system that's just culturally pounded into us. And isn't it interesting that he says to them, you must take up your cross daily. Why? Because as my own God, I have the option See, a king's subject doesn't have the option to do what the king says. A conqueror's slave doesn't have the option to do what the conqueror says. But if I'm my own God this morning, I have the option as to whether or not I want to follow the will of God or follow my will. And so when we look at this and we understand that self-denial is that. It is just my will is of no consequence the will of God is. And so in all three accounts that he gives here, we see this is true. Deny yourself and then take up your cross. Now you remember we established several weeks ago, taking up your cross means living the will of God for your life. It was the will of God for Jesus Christ to put on human flesh, his specific will for Jesus, put on human flesh, become man, be born of a virgin, walk among them, uh, minister for three and a half years, I'm going to, God the Father says, reveal that you are their Messiah. You are then going to suffer and you are going to die on the cross. I'm going to require you, Jesus, to become their sin so that I can pour my wrath upon you instead of upon them. And Jesus willingly accepted the will of his Father. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you this morning that whenever it came down to it, that he didn't struggle with that. As much as Jesus could struggle with anything. Because if you look at his prayer in the garden, he said, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Amen. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So why the analogy of the cross? Because the will of God for Jesus Christ was to bear our sin on himself on the cross, that God's wrath could be satisfied, that justice could be served, and the absolute manifestation of the love of God on humanity was Jesus becoming our sin so that we didn't have to bear that punishment. And so he lays it out here, uh, and he says here just very plainly, you must take up your cross. In other words, God had a will for Jesus, God has a will for you. Amen. So when we talk about taking up our cross, we're talking about laying aside my desires, laying aside my ambition, laying aside my dreams, and picking up the will of God for me. I can't do that for you. You can't do that for me. You can't do that for, ch for your children. Your children can't do that for you. That is a, an individual decision that's no different than salvation in its magnitude. I must choose of my own free will to deny myself and to accept the will of God taking up my cross 
and then following him. Now, understanding that, we have to come to the point where we just have to ask the question, what does that look like every day? I mean, in my practical, everyday life, what does that look like? Because I'm going to tell you what it doesn't necessarily look like. Reading X number of chapters, praying X number of minutes or hours, attending X number of church services. Now, you can't truly be a disciple and not do those things, but you can do those things and not be a disciple. And so when we look and we understand what, what we're looking at is that, that Luke is saying here that you naturally think and have been trained by your culture and society that you have the right to make these decisions on your own so you can choose if you feel like serving God today to, to serve him. But if you don't, that's okay. You can do what you want to do. Hence, we have the word added in the text daily. There's no question. What was implied in Matthew and Mark is clarified in Luke. You must take up your cross willingly and intentionally every day. Every day, die to self. Every day, do the will of God. Every day, follow Jesus. And anything short of that is self-worship and not the worship of God. When we look and we consider this point, we see this requirement again daily, this personal commitment to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we've established that a true disciple of the Lord must deny self. There's no room for consideration of a disciple's own opinion. There's no room for consideration of my comfort. There's no room for consideration of my own personal will. So pastor, my comfort. Yeah, for example, remember back a couple of weeks, whenever you didn't have electricity and you didn't have heat and it was 15 degrees outside and in some cases 30 or 40 degrees inside. You weren't very comfortable. Did you think that bothered God? If it provides an opportunity to show God to a lost world, it didn't bother God a bit. Why? Because God causes us to reign on the just and the unjust, and God uses our difficulties and our discomfort to further the gospel message. If I respond to it correctly as his child, as his disciple, then God uses it to become light to the world around me. If I respond bitterly in darkness, then I become a detriment to the gospel. Listen, the the will of God in self-denial, and by the way, I went through the same thing. I did have a little bit of heat in a fireplace, uh, but it wasn't exactly the Hilton at my house either. And so when we look and we understand denying self means that my opinion and my comfort and my will have no bearing or consequence on the will of God. Take up your cross daily, a daily commitment to obey. We hate that word, but we must do it and fulfill the will of God for my life. And to follow him, to follow Jesus. We have the idea that if Jesus follows us, then we're in the will of God. This is really our expectation today. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go to church. Then I'm going to go do whatever I want to. And the Holy Spirit indwells me. Come on, Jesus, come along with me. I'm following Jesus. No, you're not. Following him means follow him. That means I go where he goes. He's the leader. He's the master. He's the teacher. It's his will that I'm trying to uh, pursue. 
And if I get the mindset and understand that following Jesus means that wherever he goes, I go. And whatever he, wherever he sends me, I go. And whatever he says, I do. Then I'm beginning to understand the concept of what it means to follow Jesus. So then what, again, does that look like practically in my day-to-day -day life? Number one this morning, the disciple must walk with Jesus. If I would truly be his disciple, I must walk with him. That means I must deny self. I can't walk with Jesus and follow my wills and wants. Self-denial is a requirement to discipleship. Now, there are a lot of points in this point. There's two subpoints. Each one of those subpoints has a subpoint. So if you get a little bit lost uh, in the outline, uh, try, to, try to follow along and I'll try to be clear so that you can keep your notes accurate. But as we look at this disciple walking with Jesus, okay, pastor, what, is, what does that mean? We love John chapter 3 and verse 16. And it is of a truth, one of the greatest verses in all of the word of God, if not the. But we like to stop when we get to the end of verse 16. And we don't go on and find out the rest of uh, what he's laying out here for us. And so in John chapter 3 and verse 19, it says, and this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world. That men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So why is it that so many hear the gospel and reject it? And why is it that so many people that receive Jesus as their Savior never live for Jesus, never become a true disciple? It's because we love darkness rather than light. And so if I look this morning and understand that walking with Jesus means I must walk in his light. Why is that uncomfortable? Because walking in his light means that I am allowing his light to expose anything and everything in me that would come between me and him. Yeah. And so if, if I don't want to be uncomfortable physically or spiritually, so I avoid the light. Why? Because light exposes. And what he's saying here in the message is, is that men love darkness rather than light. I would rather live comfortably with the knowledge that I have than have the will of God and the light of God's word expose my sin so that God convicts me because conviction is uncomfortable. And true discipleship is not, is not complacent. True discipleship does not allow one to just sit back and, uh, and do nothing in the Christian life. Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Anything that I'm doing that is in darkness rather than light becomes evil or it serves an evil purpose. If it's taking me away from the true discipleship of my life to Christ, it becomes an evil deed. It may not be something that we would associate with evil in this day and age. Sometimes we think so distinctly in terms of evil is, uh, is murder and rape and stealing and hurting others physically. And truly those things are evil. I'm not discounting that. But we have it fixed in our mind that if I'm doing a good deed, that that's a good deed. A good deed that is anti-helping me grow in grace becomes evil because it's preventing me from becoming what God wants me to become. We love evil rather than light. Now, notice verse 20 in John 3. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. So pastor, I love the light. I don't hate it. Wait a minute. What are you doing? Well, I'm not doing evil. Are you doing things that are preventing God from developing your walk with him? Are you doing spiritual deeds for self-gain? That becomes an evil deed. 
if I'm, if I'm doing a lot of religious deeds and activities and sprinkling a little Jesus on top, that's an evil deed. It's a religious act, but it's not a spiritual act. And so he says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Why do I stay out of the light? Because I don't want to get rebuked. I'm going to stay away from the light because I don't want to hear that I'm wrong. A true disciple has to be willing to allow the light to expose what it is that has come between you and Jesus. Why? Because when I allow things in my life that come between me and Jesus, I diminish the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. The more things that I have in my heart and my life that grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the more I have in my life that steals the power or diminishes the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I cannot live effectively the Christian life in my own power. I cannot preach effectively in my own power. I cannot witness effectively in my own power. I cannot be a husband effectively in my own power. I cannot be an individual Christian in my own power. I need and must have the power of God to do anything that is worthwhile in the Christian life. And when I allow things to come in that are sinful or that are a distraction to that walk with God and grieve the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit in me as he's grieved exercises less and less power. And I commit then the sin of doing things in my own power according to my own ability and my own will rather than laying back and allowing the Holy Spirit of God to work and manifest the love of Christ and the power of God through me. Walking in His light. Allowing light to expose anything in me. Listen, this should be our prayer. God, show me anything that's coming between you and me. I don't want any hindrances. Until I can truthfully sing that there's nothing between my soul and my Savior, I should be seeking light. The second thing that I would say under walking in his light is this, that, that walking in his light is allowing his light to evaluate whose will I am pursuing. Am I doing the will of God? See, the, the question is not whether or not what I'm doing is right or wrong. The question is, am I doing the will of God or not? Am I pursuing my will or God's will? If I'm pursuing any will other than God's will, then I'm in sin. So, but Pastor, I, I, but I did all of these good deeds, all these religious acts. I, I did all of these things that, uh, that everyone said is great. Listen, if it's not the will of God for your life, it's sinful. Because to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. And it really gets back to, uh, you know, and when I was a kid in school, they, you know, when it got to learning things like, uh, you know, the different things like good, better, best, and trying to learn all those things, and it was the good, better, best. Never let it rest till your good gets better and your better gets best. If, if I, as, a, as I, as a Christian, settle for good and am satisfied with good instead of striving for better, I'm in sin. If I've achieved or attained better, and I am not experiencing best, and I'm content with better, I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in failure to being denying self and following Christ and taking up his will because I'm settling for less than his best for my life. Listen, a disciple is not content to just play church. A, a disciple, a true disciple is not content to just perform some religious deeds 
sprinkle a little Jesus on top and call it a movement of God. It is someone who is dead to self, who is yielded to God, and who is allowing the light of God to evaluate, God, am I pursuing my will or am I pursuing your will? Religious deeds do not necessarily equal the will of God in one's life. The second part of this that I would say about a disciple walking with Jesus is not only must we walk in his light, but we must learn to walk in his love. Now this is a, an important concept and it's something that I, I think that we really, it seems simple, but we miss, we miss the point. Second John verse number six says, and this is love that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. In other words, walking in the love of God. This is two thoughts about this. Number one, I must learn to walk in the understanding that God loves me. May I say to you this morning, God loves you. And we all say to that, yeah, pastor, I know that God loves me. Do you really? Because here's what we found. That most of us have come to a point where we understand intellectually that God loves me, but we really don't live like we believe that God loves us. In other words, intellectually we say, yes, I know God loves me, but we don't feel loved. We feel as if somehow we're not worthy of the love of God. You know, a lot of times we'll deal with things and, and you know, things will come in our life and we won't let go of anger or we won't let go of bitterness or we won't let go of other things in our life. And our mindset is, Pastor, you just, if you really knew what so-and-so did to me, you wouldn't forgive him either. You'd understand. Well, listen, the same thing is true in this concept of living in the love of God. God loves you. Pastor, but if you knew what I did, you wouldn't say that God loved me. May I say to you this morning that there's not anything that you ever done, ever could do, ever will do that would prevent God from loving you. Jesus Christ came into this world and paid for the sin of every person, whether they accept him or not. You understand this morning, every soul that spends an eternity in the lake of fire for eternity, for all time, separated from God in the lake of fire, do so having had their sins paid for. They just didn't accept the gift. They left the gift on the shelf. But Jesus paid for them. That means every, every murderer, every rapist, every thief, every person guilty of assault, every person that's committed heinous crimes, Jesus paid for that sin. And pastor, you mean to tell me that if they would have repented of their sin and trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, that he would have forgiven them and saved their soul? Yes. Amen. That doesn't mean that they don't have an obligation to pay for their crimes Amen. here. But the reality is, is that God loves you. And we live like we understand intellectually that God loves us, but we don't feel loved. Because we don't feel worthy to be loved. Listen, we're not worthy to be loved, but he loved us anyway. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for us while we were still in our sin. Jesus loves you this morning. Stop living a defeated life. Stop beating yourself up with a concept that you're not worthy of the love of God because in spite of the fact that you're not worthy, he loves you anyway. Walk in the understanding that God loves you 
And here's, Pastor, why does Satan fight so hard to destroy the concept of me feeling that God loves me and that I am deserving of his love? Because he understands that not only must we walk in the understanding that God loves us, but we must walk with the understanding that God wants to manifest his love to others through you. You understand what I'm saying this morning? God needs you to understand and to live and to feel his love because the people that he puts in your path, he's going to show and demonstrate his love for them through you. And if you don't feel loved, you're not demonstrating that love very well. If you don't understand that love, then you are, you are struggling to get through the day-to-day -day Christian life. He doesn't want us to struggle the day-to-day -day Christian life. He wants us to be completely, fully surrendered sons of God, understanding that God loves us in spite of our flaws, in spite of our failures and misgivings, in spite of the sin that so easily besets us. He does not grow weary of being patient with us and long-suffering with us and forgiving of us. Why? Because he loves us. So understand this morning that the first step in the daily life of a disciple is to deny self. To deny my will, to deny my opinions, to deny, to deny my understanding and simply to embrace the concept that Jesus Christ is my God. And in self-denial, I subject myself to walk in his light and to walk in his love. The disciples, secondly must take up his cross daily. Daily. What do we mean here? Well, I want you to notice some things about this. The, the, secondly, the disciple must watch Jesus. The, the first thing that we looked at this morning was that the disciple must walk with Jesus. Secondly, this morning, the disciple must watch Jesus. So they watched him. How did Jesus impact the lives of these men? Because they watched him. They watched what he did. They watched how he acted and treated people. They watched how he interacted with God. And we see that evidenced in their life. And we could spend a lot of time here. We're just not going to spend that much time on this because I think that it's easier for us to understand. But the first thing I want you to point out, we see in Luke chapter 11, they watched him pray. Can you imagine being in that prayer meeting? I can't imagine a more life-changing experience than listening to Jesus talk to his father. They did. For three and a half years, they listened to Jesus converse with God. Amen. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, they were moved by that experience when they said to him, and it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, they were in awe. They were too in awe to speak until he got finished. When he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Yeah. As John also taught his disciples. What are they saying here? They say, listen, the John's, those that followed John ahead of time and those that knew disciples of John said that those that watched John the Baptist, they wanted to learn how to pray. Those that walked with and, and learned Jesus, they said, teach us to pray. What do they do? They're watching their master. They're watching the Lord Jesus Christ. They're experiencing his life and their response is, teach us to talk to God like you talk to God. Teach us to have a relationship with the Father like your relationship is with the Father. And by the way this morning, my friend, that's exactly the life that Jesus died to give you. Right. 
Not just eternal life in heaven, but an abundant life. He said, I'm not come that you might, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. The abundant Christian life is not a life filled with frills and things. It is a life filled with the light and the love of God manifest in my heart and my life on a day-to-day basis. And when I begin to understand what God wants to do in my life, I come to the realization that as I lay my desires and my wants aside and I take up my cross, God's will for my life, what I am sustained and edified to do, what I'm encouraged by is watching Jesus. Watch him pray. They watched him plead. All of his life he went around. All of those years of ministry pleading. What's he pleading? He's pleading with sinners to accept him as Savior. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is making a plea to those that are lost and destitute, to those that feel unloved, to those that feel without hope, to those that feel that God could never love them, that God could never forgive them, that God uh, could never change their life. Jesus sought them out and said, I love you. He's pleading with them to repent of their sin. He's pleading with them to accept him as their Messiah. He's pleading with them to allow him to change their life. And we look and we understand that as he makes that plea, his disciples are watching and they're being impacted, understanding as they see the will of God unfolded in the life of Jesus, that creates and develops a hunger in them to see the will of God unfold in their own lives. He pleads. To sinners, truth to sinners, and then he pleads surrender to the saints. What do you see Jesus do everywhere he goes? People accepted him, now follow me. People gave their, they, they, they came in fellowship with him, they accepted him, they found his forgiveness. What's his next step? Follow me. Surrender to me. And I'm telling you this morning, if you give your heart to Christ this morning, if you find forgiveness and salvation this morning and accept that gift of his forgiveness and begin that new life in Christ, that God's command and expectation for you is that you give your life to him a living sacrifice. Not because it's part of your salvation, but because it's a manifestation of his love and his working in your life. He wants to use your life then to bring others to himself. A disciple this morning. And again, we're not talking about casual Christianity. We're not talking about the random Christian life, the sporadic Christian life. We're talking about genuine biblical discipleship. If you would be a disciple of Christ, you must walk walk with Jesus and you must watch Jesus. And then lastly, a disciple must work for Jesus. Disciples are workers. Disciples are doers of the word and not hearers only. Disciples are involved with making a difference in the lives of the people that Jesus came to make a difference in in their lives. He gives us a couple of analogies. He says, follow me. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 17, he says to them, some of them, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Now, there's some things about fishing. When I think about this, I've always kind of just thought about it in the realm of my fishing experience, which is pretty minimal because I like to fish. I just don't take time to fish. I don't like to eat fish for one, but, but I like the experience of going out and fishing. I enjoy it. And there've been times when I've done a lot more of it, but in the last 25 years that I've been in ministry, 24, 
I, I really just haven't felt like I had a lot of time for that. If you do, that's great. I should make more time for it, I'm first to admit. But that's the way that we generally think about being made fishers of men. Is that just me or you feel the same way? We think about what our experience is. So we think about going out with our little bait caster, and I've got my little bait caster rod and, and flipping it up against the bank and trying to get a nice bass. And it's, 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 you know, it's pretty busy. You don't just let it sit there. And then those, those cat fishermen of you who are the lazy fishermen that you just want to prop your feet up on the riverbank and let your line get tight and put something stinky on the end of your hook and, and wait for that bottom dweller to come and snatch it off. So you sit there and you nap or read a book until, uh, or engage in conversation until you see your, your rod bumping a little bit and then you're like, ooh, I might have something here. And then you reach up and you try to snag it while it's trying to suck on whatever stinky thing you've got on the end of your hook. That's what we think of as fishing. Do you realize this morning that these men that Jesus was talking to were not casual recreational fishermen? They were commercial fishermen. It was their livelihood. The success or failure of their lives and their families, the welfare, the well-being of their families were determined by the success or failure that they experienced on Lake in the Sea of Galilee. And when we look and we understand some things about commercial fishing, I just want to make a few observations here. Number one, and this is just really basic. I didn't go do a bunch of research on the commercial fishing industry. Uh, and so, uh, but I think that we get that. But you can't surpass the preparation of the fishermen. A fisherman that would be successful must be prepared. Yeah. You see these fishermen that go out to the sea. When they get ready, they, their, their boats are inspected, their nets are inspected, their equipment's inspected, and their ship is loaded down with ice. Why? Because if they're going seven hours out into the Atlantic or the Pacific and they make a great catch, they don't want their catch to rot before they get it back to shore. They have to make pre preparation. And what I'm saying this morning is a successful fisherman of men must be a prepared fisherman. Is my heart prepared? Is my spirit prepared? Is my life right? Is, is the power of God upon me or has it been diminished? Now listen to me this morning. If, if you uh, are, are going out and actively engaging in fishing for men, which we all should be doing, whether we're doing it collectively together or whether we're doing it day to day as the Lord leads and puts people in our path, which is every Christian's responsibility. If I'm going out spending time and my, my walk with God is not right, if my home is not right, if my inner relationships with folks that I work with is not right, then I am going powerless. I'm going in the power of the flesh and in my own ability rather than the power of God and I will fail. What do you see manifest in the lives of these disciples? How many times do you see Jesus coming to them when they have toiled all night and caught nothing? Do you really think when Jesus came up to them at the end and said, hey, cast your net on this side of the boat or the other, that they hadn't already cast their net on that side of the boat about a hundred times that night? What was missing? The power of God. Listen, you, you can't be in a full-blown feud with your church, with your spouse, with your children, with your boss, and expect for God's power to be on you whenever you go out and proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not possible. Why? Because your nets are broken. 
Because you don't have your fish finder. That's the way they do it these days. You know, they don't, they don't go out and fish randomly. They cruise around the ocean until their little radar tells them that there's a big school of tuna underneath them. They, they, you know, even, even recreational fishermen these days have little fish finders on their, on their little small boats that tell them, oh, there's some fish down here. This is a good spot. They didn't have that. They had to repair their nets. They had to be prepared. Listen, are you prepared? Listen, we're not talking about, uh, about, uh, about a physical labor here as much as we're talking about a spiritual condition. I am wasting my time and I am doing harm to the name of Jesus and, and, and I'm not helping things when my personal life is not right and I stand in the pulpit and preach the sermon. Or I stand in my Sunday school class and teach a lesson. Or I go out and participate in this ministry, that ministry, or the other. Whether it's, I'm not saying, listen, those are good things, but they're just simply, without the power of God, they're nothing more than religious deeds. And religious deeds without the power of God are a waste of time. The preparation of the fishermen. Secondly, see that the fishermen must be patient. The patience of a fisherman. Now I have to give it to, you know, to, to Peter and James and John in particular. They, they exhibit some great patience when it comes to their profession. They toiled all night and took nothing. I mean, I think probably about three or four in the morning, if I hadn't gotten anything, I'd be like ready to wrap things up and just call it a night. But they were desperate. Why didn't they stop? Because of desperation. See, we don't understand the concept of desperation in modern day America. The reason that we don't experience God on a greater level is because we're of no desperation for God. We are satisfied and content with a minimal experience of God in our lives. We have no real... Do you realize that there has not been a nationwide revival in the United States since the middle of the 1800s? And the modern day church is in trouble by that in the least. As long as we've got a couple of meetings on the church calendar every so often, we're good to go. And revival shouldn't be something that comes around once in a while. It should be a sustained way of life. It should just be the normal Christian experience. Why isn't it? Because we're not disciples. Because we're content to serve God and to do it at our own pace and at our own pleasure. We're our own gods picking and choosing when we will and when we won't obey and serve and do what God's commanded us to do. A disciple must work for Jesus. We see the patience of the fishermen. They're patient. They're toiling all night. They don't give up easily. And then we see the payoff of the fishermen. Now I want you to understand here, you're a disciple. You're committed to Christ. You're denying self. You've taken up your cross. You're following Christ. And if you go out and you're, uh, you, you expect an immediate payoff, you're going to be frustrated. Be prepared. Listen, the winning of someone to Christ, the developing of someone's Christian life, the helping someone to become discipled, to learn and to grow in their faith, that, that in and of itself is something that requires preparation. The payoff doesn't come immediately most of the time. The payoff doesn't come until way later on down the road. You have to exhibit some patience. And then, but when the payoff comes, when the payoff comes, that's shouting ground. When the payoff comes, that's God moving in a miraculous way. And so we see that these men, uh, that Jesus says, I will make you to become fishers of men. It's not automatic. It is a learned and developed skill with God empowering and working in your life, leading you to Christ, making us to become. The second thought that I have about this is that we see harvesting, reaping the harvest. In Matthew chapter number 9, 
he, he gives this example and analogy. And we're not going to look at a ton of scripture here. Uh, but I want you to get the concept. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 37 and 8. Then saith he to his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. In Luke chapter number 10 and verse number 2, he says, Therefore again said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Again, two accounts, two vantage points of the same story. It's been said that this is the only prayer request that Jesus ever gave. Pray for laborers. Why? Because there's a harvest out there. There's some things about harvesting though. First, I would say that harvesting is labor intensive. You don't harvest without sweat, especially not in our climate. If you're going to harvest, you must labor. If you're going to reap, a, you, you can't just plop yourself down in a church pew on Sunday and expect to reap a harvest at some point during the week. If we think that we can just casually sit by and let and do things our way and God bless it, we're deceiving ourselves. Harvesting is labor intensive. The second thing that I would say is that harvesting is only possible after cultivation, after planting, and after watering. How do I reap a harvest? Well, first you've got to break up the fallow ground. Those of you that plant a garden, and certainly if those of you, if you do anything on a larger scale farming-wise, you understand that the first thing that you've got to do when you go out in the spring to get the field ready is you've got to set the plow, and you've got to set it deep, and you've got to disc it up, and you've got to get that ground uh, broken up, and you've got to get it loose, and you've got to get it cultivated. And until you do, there's no point in sowing any seed, because that seed's just going to wash off. Oh, maybe the occasional sprig will sprout up here and there, and you'll get the occasional... Uh, you'll get the occasional plant, but you're not going to get a harvest. It takes cultivation. You've got to fertilize it. You've got to water it. Some climates you have to water more than others. Some you have to go to great lengths to make sure that it gets watered. You drive around in a lot of places and you, you, you know, they get plenty of rain. You don't have to worry too much about it. Other places you see big irrigation equipment everywhere. Sometimes you drive places you don't even see it anymore because it's biodegradable uh, lines that they just roll out along their rows and pump it full of water and then at the end of the season they just leave it there and by spring it's dissolved and gone. But it's got to be irrigated. Why? Because it's got to be watered. And what I'm saying this morning is that if we would walk with the Lord and embrace His will for our lives, then we will be working for Him. What is our work? Our work is the gospel that's been entrusted to our care. It is living my life in such a way that when I go out and preach the Word of God and share with my, the Word of God my testimony and faith to lost people, that they see the light of Jesus manifested through me. That they see the love of Jesus manifested through me so that that Word that they now hear is received and resonates as something that's real and not something that's fake and put on. And what we need to be is a people that are yielded to him as disciples. Harvesting is labor intensive and it's only possible after cultivation, planting, and watering. To what end, Pastor? So what's the end of all of this? Why be a disciple? Why should I deny myself? Why should I walk with him? Why should I watch him? Why should I labor for him and work for him? I want you to notice John chapter 15. 
And we spend a lot of time in John chapter 15. Verse number 16. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And ordained you. That ye should go. And bring forth fruit. And that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. What is the will of God? He chose you. He chose me. I don't know what the specific will of God is for your life as far as if God's called you to preach or called you to the mission field or called you to work in sales or called you to uh, serve in whatever career is God's will for your life. And believe me, God needs his people in every avenue and walk and aspect of life. It's not the will of God for everyone to pastor. But God has a will for you. And I don't know what God's specific will is to you in those terms, but I do know this. Whatever God's specific will is to you on those terms, when you get to fulfilling that will, you cannot fulfill it fully if you are not fishing for men. If you are not trying to reap a harvest. Let me ask you a question this morning. Whose field are you cultivating? Who have you reached out to? Who have you shown the love of Christ to? Who have you spoken truth to when even when it was an uncomfortable conversation in love? What I'm saying this morning is that cultivating, sowing, and watering, that in fishing, the preparation and the patience that lead to the payoff is relationship building. What we need is not a bunch of people that gather up at the church house because they want to just cling on to the name of Jesus for a while. What we need is people that gather together that want to have a real, genuine, powerful relationship with Jesus. Relationship is what changes lives, not religion. Religion will condemn you and deceive you to hell. Or to the futility of trying to live in your power instead of God's. That's not what God wants. God wants disciples that are cultivating relationships, that are building relationships with Jesus. What have you done this week to build your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I, I did this, that, and the other. Again, you can, you can read your Bible and you can go through the motions of prayer and you can even share your faith. But if you do it in your power and in your strength, it's futile. I must do it in the power of God. How do I do that? By not grieving the Holy Spirit. And when I justify and allow, listen, if, if, if I take the gospel and I present it in a contaminated package. Why would anybody want that? I, I go to the store and buy something and my wife sends me to get something. I don't even, I don't even buy a dented can because it's marred. I don't want to pay for something that's marred. Why would I trust my eternal soul to something that has marred packaging? And if my life as a Christian is marred by bitterness, by anger, by self-service, by self-elevation, if my life spiritually and my life practically is my, the package of my life as the messenger of Christ is marred by things in my life that's grieving the Holy Spirit, why would that be acceptable to anyone that I try to share my faith with? 
He said, be holy as I am holy. Amen. He didn't say it for convenience sake. He said it so that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit, so that we could have the power of God in our lives, so that we could live an abundant Christian life that bears fruit that remains. That's what disciples do. If you would be and if I would be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I must walk with Jesus. I must expose myself to the light of his word. I must allow him to savagely tear my soul and my spirit apart and identify my sin brutally so that I can confess it and forsake it. So that I see what he sees and so that I'll give my heart in tune with the spirit of God. I must watch Jesus, be inspired by him, be inspired by his relationship with the Father, be inspired by his commitment to get the truth to sinners and to compel and inspire surrender of the saints. I must learn and understand that a disciple must labor for Christ, must work for Jesus. That I can't sit back and let everyone else do the things that need to be done, but I must do them. Not because I was commanded to, but because I realize how much God loves me and the love that God loves me with is so great and so powerful that it compels me to respond by showing my love back to him. That's discipleship. How do I know if I'm a disciple this morning, Pastor? Well, whose will are you pursuing? With whom are you cultivating relationships? Where's your harvest? Did your harvest remain? If my harvest hasn't remained, if I'm not cultivating relationships, it's hard to see that I'm willing to be a genuine disciple of Jesus.